0: This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 14. I would like to read in your hearing verses 13 and 14 and also verses 29 to 31. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 14. Let us read verses 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now please drop down to verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. I know you've heard it said that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Yet I want to submit to you this morning that sometimes the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag. If you read the Exodus account with an open Bible in one hand and a map of ancient Egypt in the other, you'll quickly conclude that the Israelites zigzagged their way across the desert. This is not an example of Moses just being a man, refusing to ask for directions when everybody knows they's lost. No, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it's not Moses leading the people, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who is navigating and leading his children. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it says that the Lord did not lead them through Philistine country, though that was shorter. He led them down the desert road, to the Red Sea. Now, God gives his rationale for doing this. For he said that if my people faced the Philistines, they may face war. They're not ready for that. And they might return and retreat and go back to Egypt. Now, one thing I know about God, which is true 1,500 years before Christ, it is also true 2,000 years after the coming of Christ. And it is this, That God never sets his children free only to have them retreat back into bondage. God never wanted his children to be set free from Egypt only to turn around and go back into those shackles and chains. And what's true then is also true today, beloved. That God has not redeemed you. He has not set you free from your past, set you free from your sin, only to have you turn around, retreat, and go back into a bondage of slavery to sin. No, God has set you free both now and forevermore. And let's just be honest, there may be more than a few of us in the room today, and we know that we've been set free, but these last few weeks or months or maybe even a couple of years, they've been tough. And you've been venturing back, retreating back into the old self, the old way of life. My friend, this morning you came to hear loud and clear that God has not set you free for you to retreat back into bondage. It is God who is leading his children. He leads them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That cloud during the daytime was identifiable. It was easy to spot right there in the sky. It also provided some shade against the Egyptian sun. At nighttime, that cloud transformed into a pillar of fire. Once again, easily observable. Everybody could spot it and it provided some warmth in the coldest hours of the night. It is God who is leading his people. He's leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. At the beginning of our chapter, we are told that the Lord led the people south, the desert road. Then he told them to stop, turn around, and go back to encamp near the Red Sea, the space opposite that village called Belzaphon. Now, when Pharaoh heard about this, when he heard that the Israelites were zigzagging their way through the desert, acting as if they were confused, not even knowing how to follow a GPS, not even knowing how to get out of the desert, he looked at his advisors and he said, what have we done? We let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. I can well imagine that the economy of Egypt had tanked. Not only because of all the plagues that wiped out the vegetation, wiped out the livestock, but in one night, the working force all walked out of Egypt. 600,000 men, not counting women and children, about 2 million individuals in one night walked out. And as they uh, walked out in this grand, glorious exodus, they plundered the Egyptians. You'll recall that the Egyptians were giving them gold and silver, trinkets and treasures, all types of things, just telling them to get out and get lost. And after a while, Pharaoh said, you know what? This economy is coming to a screeching halt. What have I done? And now the Israelites, they're just circling around. They don't know where to go. They don't know north from south, east from west. So he ordered for 600 of his fastest chariots, pulled by his strongest horses, mounted by his best skilled soldiers. He said, you go get those Israelites, recapture them, And bring them back to Egypt. This morning, I want you to see where God planted his people. I want you to see this with your mind's eye. Militarily speaking, God planted the Israelites between a rock and a hard place. They are sitting ducks. There's no way. They are cornered in a crisis. If you can visualize this with me, I want you to see that their backs are up against the Red Sea. To the north of them is an Egyptian military outpost. Beyond that is Philistine country. There's no way they can go north. To the south of them is the Egyptian desert. That provides absolutely no protection. There's no way they can outrun or outmaneuver 600 of Egypt's finest horses and chariots. There's no way they can go south and survive. They can't charge westward. If they charge right in front of them, that's where Pharaoh and his army are coming at them. There's no way they can charge against it. They're not skilled. They're slaves. They're not battle-tested. They're not ready for war. And I've already told you their backs are against a wall. Their backs are against the Red Sea. What are they going to do? Swim across the Red Sea? Walk on the water? What's going to happen? They are cornered in a crisis. I want you to see this. God strategically planted them in a spot Where they're sitting ducks. There's no way. They can't turn in any, anywhere they turn. There's devastation, slaughter, and destruction. There's no way out. Cornered in a crisis. It's at this point that you may be able to relate to the Israelites. You've done your very best to follow the lead of the Lord. He has guided you and you have followed Him in obedience. Oh, you don't have a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. But child of God, you do have the word of God. And the psalmist says that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God guides the steps of the children of God. Not only that, but you have the spirit of God. Because we live after Pentecost, after those 50 days from Passover, then Passover when Jesus was executed and buried and raised from the dead. And, and, and then, uh, 50 days after that at Pentecost, the disciples huddled in that upper room waiting for the other shoe to drop. But God's mighty wind began to breathe and blow. And the Spirit came and rested on all believers for all tasks and all times. We have the Spirit of God in our lives. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that Spirit of God has sealed us unto salvation. It's a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. So child of God, you today, you may not have a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, but you do have the Word of God and the Spirit of God leading your life. But you may find yourself this morning cornered in a medical crisis. The doctors don't know what to do. They can't explain why the cancer's back. They can't tell you what needs to happen to rid your body of whatever disease it may have. They could do exploratory surgery, but that's not a very good option. It could do more harm than help. They could try to give you some experimental medication oh but the side effects of that are vicious you don't know exactly where to turn you don't know what to do it seems that every avenue you go down it's a dead end you feel as if you are cornered in a crisis oh maybe yours isn't a medical crisis maybe it's a financial crisis you've worked hard all your life I mean, you've got a great work ethic. It's been instilled into you from your mom and dad. You're convinced that the field of work that you're in, you were led by God to do it. He shaped you, he gifted you, he talented you, he led you, and the job that you've been doing for the last 17 years, it is the Lord who laid that in your lap. Nobody could convince you otherwise. But six months ago, you got let go from the company the reason they told you was because of corporate downsizing. It wasn't job performance. It wasn't that you did anything wrong. It's just uh corporate downsizing for six months. You've been looking for a job and all the talking heads have told you that the economy is back on track, but it's not tracking for you because you can't find a job. Now the severance package is depleted. Bills are piling up and the creditors are bearing down on you like Pharaoh and his chariots. And you think to yourself, what am I going to do? Where do I turn? Every place I look is a dead end. What am I going to do? Cornered in a crisis. Maybe your crisis is not medical. Maybe it's not even financial. Perhaps this morning, you know what it is to be cornered in a relational crisis. You remember when you and your spouse first dated, he was so funny and quick-witted. And she was so vivacious and charming. But now, after about two and a half decades, he's not nearly as funny as he used to be. And she's not as charming as she once was. Oh, you remember the children? (laughs) When you had children, they were cute, they were cuddly, they were adorable. Now they're rebellious. Now you've always looked down on the Aztecs. I mean, those barbarians who offered up their children as sacrifices under their gods. (laughs) But some days, (laughs) that seems like a viable option. And you go to church. You're in church more times than not. You Plaster a smile on your face. Whenever the preacher asks you how you're doing, the responses are fine, fantastic, never better. Those are the phrases that come out of your mouth. Oh, but you hope that the preacher doesn't see through the facade. You hope that the Sunday school teacher doesn't put you in a difficult spot to answer a question, you hope that a good friend doesn't see through the, the the imagery that you put up in your life and on Facebook. You simply just grin and bear it. You can't really tell your aging parents. That's too much of a burden for them to bear. You don't really have a good friend that you can confide in. But just between me and you, you wonder if the marriage is gonna last You don't know what's going to happen to your children. You've done the best you can, and yet they're still so wayward. So every place you look, you feel as if you're cornered in a crisis. You know how the Israelites feel? They look to the north, can't go that way. Look to the south, no way they could survive. They could charge westward, to their own death, and don't even think about going eastward. That's the Red Sea that's behind them. There's nowhere they can go, cornered in a crisis. In our story, it's at this moment that the people turn on the preacher. Sometimes that happens. They turn on the preacher, and they say to Moses, Moses, was it because Egypt did not have enough graves that you brought us out here to the desert to die? Don't you remember that we told you we would much rather stay in Egypt and live than come to the desert and die? Don't you remember that we love the Taj Mahal called Egypt? Don't you remember how well we loved working and slaving to those Egyptian taskmasters? You know, when you're cornered in a crisis, you have short-term amnesia. You forget. Where you came from, you forget what you were in. I promise you, there were no Israelites that said uh, to Moses way back then, hey, listen, we want, we really want to stay here and we want to bake some more bricks under the heavy sun. No, I think that sun had baked their memory bank. But they got cornered in a crisis. And they turned on the only person that was standing there, Moses himself. And they said, why have you brought us here? We would rather experience anything else than this. You know what it is to be cornered in a crisis? You know what it is to be in that spot where you say to yourself, listen, I would rather do anything than this. I would rather have to endure anything than this. I would go back to the way life used to be so long as I don't have to endure this, whatever this may be, cornered in a crisis. And Moses demonstrates his finest leadership. He does not blast the people. He simply preaches a sublime short sermon. I've been told there's no such thing as a bad short sermon. (laughs) Moses preached a sublime short sermon. It's two verses. Verses 13 and 14. The two verses that I read in your hearing. I'll summarize that two verse sermon with three phrases, fear not, sit tight, look up. That's what Moses tells the people. Fear not, sit tight, look up. Do not be afraid. That's how he begins and they said Moses can you please look around here do you see what's coming down the pike here come the Egyptians we can't go north we can't go south and we can't go across the Red Sea and you have the audacity to tell us do not be afraid yes exactly you don't have anything to fear do not be afraid I've been told what you've been told there are 365 do not fears in the Bible I don't know if that's true Some people can only find 90 of them. Other people get very creative and they find in excess of 400, nearly 500. I don't know particularly how many do not fears are in the Bible, but I do know why people say 365. It's because we have a do not fear for every day of the year. In regards to how many of them are found in the Bible, the truth of the scripture is this, that God tells us we have nothing to fear. If you are a child of God, if you are, a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear. You don't need to fear your future and you don't need to fear your past. You don't need to fear unemployment, and you don't need to fear a downturned economy. You don't need to fear cancer, and you don't need to fear disease. You don't need to fear persecution, and you don't need to fear Pharaoh's chariots. And you don't need to fear the Philistine country. And you don't need to fear the gritty, sandy desert down to the south. And you certainly don't need to fear the raging Red Sea. You have nothing to fear. Do not fear. The first thing Moses tells the people is, fear not. Do not be afraid. Then he tells them to sit tight. Now I want to be very clear. To say sit tight does not mean do nothing. Let me say that again. To say sit tight does not mean do nothing. We're Trinitarians, so I'll say it a third time. To say sit tight does not mean do nothing. There are two phrases. Stand firm, be still. That first phrase, stand firm, is a military term that literally means be poised for attack. Stand firm. Be poised, be ready, be on alert, be ready for attack. Stand firm. The Apostle Paul uses... That Greek version of that word when he says in his Corinthian correspondence, stand firm and let nothing move you. The idea is don't let anything move you off point. Don't let anything move you from where you are. You stand firm. You stand steady. You stand ready. You are poised to attack. Stand firm. Be still. That word does not mean be lazy. It doesn't mean be complacent. It doesn't mean be noncommittal. That word be still means be undisturbed. Have a quiet, calm, unquiet, disturbed. Think Think about what he's telling the people. He is telling them, I need you to stand firm. I need you to be still. In other words, I want you to be poised, ready for attack. I want you to stand firmly on the truth of God and who he is. And I also want you to have an undisturbed, undeterred, undistracted demeanor. I want you to be still. I want there to be a calm that comes over you because regardless of the situation, God's got it. So you stand firm And be still. That doesn't mean do nothing. It doesn't mean check out. It doesn't mean become complacent and lazy. No, it's it's a soldier who is ready for battle, poised for attack. And undisturbed, undistracted, ready whenever God says, go. Be still. Stand firm. And then Moses says, look up see your deliverance. Look up and see that the Egyptians that are before you right now, you will not see beyond this day because God will fight for you. It's not that God's going to fight against you. It doesn't even say God's going to fight with you. It says God's going to fight for you. He's going to do the battle for you. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, the New Testament writes. And Moses says, listen, I want you to look up for your redemption is drawing near. I want you to look up for your deliverance is coming. I want you to look up and place all your faith, all of your trust in God. Because God, who got you in this mess, will get you out of this mess. Because whatever God brings you to, he can also take you through. So, fear not. Sit tight look up. If we could summarize all of that in one word, it would be trust. What Moses is urging the people to do is trust in God. The author of the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, we trust in the name of God Almighty. The right, of the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. Trust is a constant theme that is woven through the fabric of scripture. And what Moses is calling upon the people to do is simply trust God. So God positioned himself between the Egyptians and the Israelites. That pillar of cloud, it it rested between the army of Egypt and the people of Israel. And on the side of the Egyptians, there was darkness. God threw them in complete confusion. On the side of the Israelites, there was nothing but light all night long. The Lord told to Moses, uh, stretch out your hand over the waters. these waters? Yes. Stretch out your hand over those waters. And Moses did. And the Red Sea began to part. God sent a mighty wind and, and the water began to wall up all night long. The wind of God was blowing upon the Red Sea, separating so that the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And sometime early that morning, The Lord said to and through Moses, let the people go through the Red Sea. And they crossed on dry ground. Not one bit of dirt got in their sandals. Not one bit of mud was found on the foot of their sandals. And not any of the, of the, of the water began to mist in their face. It was amazing. It was miraculous. They walked through on dry ground. Apparently you've heard the story because you're not really moved by that. That's pretty astounding, don't you think? And then after all the Israelites got through the Red Sea, then God removed the pillar of cloud and the Egyptians saw. And when they saw the Israelites had gone through, they acknowledged that the wall of water was a, was a mighty sight. It was a miraculous event. But they needed to go get those Israelites because that's what Pharaoh told them to do. So they started into the riverbed. And our passage tells us Then when they got in there, God caused the wheels of their chariots to come off. The wheels got stuck in the mud. That which was so dry became wet again. And, And as they did that, then the horses, the hooves began to sink down into the riverbed. And they realized that God is fighting for the Israelites. So then they tried to turn around and retreat. And when they began to do that, God caused all the raging water to come crashing back down. In fact, not one Egyptian was left standing. All of them died. And when that happened, and when the people saw the power of God, they placed their trust in him. What is trust? Trust is unwavering reliance upon the Lord regardless of the situation. That's trust. Unwavering reliance upon the Lord regardless of the situation. Unwavering reliance upon the Lord regardless of the situation. They had trust in God. Because God had done a mighty miracle. In fact, they would never forget this. They would never forget this. This was a monumental moment in Israel's history when God flexed his muscles and fought for them and rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians and part of the Red Sea, it's like a cross on dry ground. In fact, this story is told over and over and over throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament and referred to in the New Testament. This is a powerful story. It was one that was never forgotten. And this morning, I want you not to miss this Not to miss this point, that God used the most unlikely plan in their predicament to become the remedy of their redemption. God planted them there, right? He permitted it. He allowed it. And had they trusted in their own skill, they would have been slaughtered. Had they trusted in their own insight, they would have died. Had they done their own thing and, and, and come up with a good logical plan, they would have been overtaken, recaptured, and taken back to Egypt. Had some of the people said, you know what, we think we need to go north. You know what, we think we can really just kind of rise up inside of us. I think we need to go and charge against those Philistines. We know they're the bullies on the playground, but we think that one fight we could get through them. That would have been Terrible. Or had another group said, you know what? I really think we just need to go south. Let's just take our chances in the desert. There's no way they would have won that battle and outraced the Egyptian chariots. And still, there could have been another group who said, you know what? It just makes logical sense to us. We know the Egyptians. We know how they maneuver. We know how they think. Let's just charge against them. They're not expecting us to charge them. Let's just have the element of surprise. Let's charge against the Egyptians. All those at some level would have made some sense. I promise you that nobody would have said, hey, let's wait for God to part the Red Sea so we can cross on dry ground. Nobody would have thought that. They would have said, you are an idiot. There's no way. We've got to do one of these other things. Had they trusted themselves, they would have surely died. Because many times, God uses the most... Unlikely plan in their predicament to be the remedy of their redemption. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers, but God placed him in a palace. Why? Because God had a plan. David was a man after God's own heart. He was told to be the next king of Israel. Yet he took a walk on the wild side. He dabbled in immorality. He got his hands dirty with being accomplice to murder. And yet, God had a plan. Jonah, he was a powerful prophet. He was a great preacher. But he was a racist at heart. And when God said to him, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against the Assyrians, he said, you got to get somebody else. I ain't going and you can't make me go. But God had a plan. Elijah. Elijah went up on Mount Carmel. He was a great prophet. He stood and single-handedly defeated four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And then in the next breath, in the next moment, when Jezebel says something mean to him, it sends him into a tailspin of doubt-infested depression. He would have stayed in that downward spiral of depression, but God had a plan. Zacchaeus was gripped by greed. He had a shady disposition towards his own people, but God had a plan. Nicodemus, he was quite religious, but not really righteous, but God had a plan. Martha, She was one who was a workaholic and she worried too much, but God had a plan. And Peter, he was a hothead. He was a salty sailor, but God had a plan. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that God many times will use the most unlikely plan in our predicament to be the remedy of our redemption. Because God always knows how to get us out of the pickle that he put us in. I got to tell you, my grandmother would always talk about being in a pickle. I don't know what that means. But I just assume it's not a good thing, right? To be in a pickle. But that's what my grandmother would say. Well, you're in a pickle. But whatever God gets you to, he will get you through. He was the one that was leading the people. He was the one that guided them in this spot. He was the one that rescued them. You know, all of us know what it is to be cornered in a crisis. Maybe it's medical Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. All of us know what it is to be in a spiritual crisis. Since the Garden of Eden, all of us have been tainted by sin. Sin has marred us. It has distorted us. We have a propensity towards sin, a craving towards rebellion, and it is our own condemnation. And 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth to fix That crisis. Jesus was born in a Bethlehem barn. He was raised in a Jewish home. About the age of 30, he began a three-year ministry. He preached good news to the poor. He opened the eyes of the blind. He even raised the dead back to life again. At the end of his three-year ministry, he was handed over to the religious rulers. He was handed over to the Jewish leadership and they put him to death on a cross. All the while, God is using that on purpose for his glory and for our good. And Jesus died on a cross. His dead body was placed into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus got up from the dead so that his precious blood was shed for your sin and for mine. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He took the hell upon himself that you and I should experience for all of eternity. And Jesus, on the third day, got up from the grave. I'm here to tell you that's the most unlikely plan in our predicament. Nobody saw that one coming. But yet God said, this was my plan from the very beginning. Because I'm going to come and die in your stead. I'm going to come and die in your place. I'm going to come and take sin away from you. I'm going to get you out of the corner. I'm going to get you out of the crisis. And God 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 says, I can do it. Just trust me. The biggest crisis I've ever had in my life is my crisis of sin. It's the biggest crisis I've ever had. What am I supposed to do with my rebellion? What am I supposed to do with my disobedience? It's like a cancer. I crave it just like you crave it. What do we do with our sinful rebellion? How do we get rid of this? And then the hymn writer answers. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I know what it is to be cornered in a crisis. You know what it is to be cornered in a crisis. And regardless, when you find yourself backed up and every place you look, it seems as if it's your destruction. I want you to fear not, sit tight and look up for your redemption is drawing near. So this morning, friend, maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation. Maybe you are here, my friend, and you know what it is to be cornered in a crisis. And you're not responding with fear not, you're responding with fearful. And you're not sitting tight, you are agitated, jumping up and down. And you're not looking up, you're looking every which way. This morning... Cast all your cares upon the one who cares for you. Whatever God took you to, he will take you through. This morning, only trust him. Unwavering reliance upon the Lord, regardless of a situation. Help me, Father, help us to be a people of trust. Help us to trust you in all things. Oh, Father, we love you. we give you this invitation. We pray that we'll respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.